Today's scripture reading will be from First Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Good morning. I was a little underexcited, but I guess I'll have to accept it, and uh, maybe things will perk up a little bit here for you, but uh, it's great to see everybody here. Special welcome to, we have a lot of guests here, a lot of family members that are here, and some former members from Newland are here. We're just grateful to see you all, and for the third time, happy Father's Day, and uh, Gerald, you're supposed to say thank you again, but that's okay, but uh, thank you, yeah, he's not very excited about it now, but it's great. I, I, um, I can't help but think of my own dad, of course, today, and miss him, and uh, it's the best example I've had in my life, and I thank God for other men who were not my biological father, who were like fathers to me, and I think and give honor today to Ellen's dad, Ted Metcalf, who became my dad, who became such a close friend and mentor to me. And I thank God for Bill Mansell, who was like a father to me when we moved to Petaluma back in the 70s, and we started our ministry there. And to all of the men here, to fathers, yes, a happy Father's Day to you, but to every man here, whether you're single, married, have children or not, May you and I be reminded today that God calls us as men in the faith to be examples of Jesus Christ to those around us and those that are younger than us that are looking to us that they might see in us a man devoted to God, that we might be that example. And that is my charge to us as men today and that is my prayer and my blessing upon us as men today that God would help us to do the most important thing in our lives and that's to bring honor and glory to Him by pointing others to the God who has called us. And now we turn to our text today. First of all, I came across this week some very archaic laws. Laws that are actually on the books but nobody perhaps really knows why they're still there. Let me give you a rundown with a few state laws. In Alabama, it is illegal for a driver to be blindfolded while operating a vehicle. I don't know about other states, but in Alabama, no blindfolds. In Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church. Some of you could be arrested in Alabama right now, I can tell you. In California, women may not drive in a house coat. There's a lot of people getting away with crimes in my neighborhood. Uh, In Florida, there is a special law that prohibits unmarried women from parachuting on Sundays. Married women can. In Kansas, Kansas prohibits shooting rabbits from a motorboat. In Louisiana, it is illegal to rob a bank and then shoot at the bank teller with a water pistol. I don't know, maybe it's okay if you don't use a water pistol, but you can't use a water pistol. In New York, it is against the law to throw a ball at someone's head for fun, which pretty much takes care of the Yankees. But anyway, um, 
In Texas, it is illegal for one to shoot a buffalo from the second story of a hotel. So stay on the third story is my advice. And in Texas, this is on the books, when two railroad trains meet at a crossing, each shall stop and neither shall proceed until the other has passed. Oh, it's archaic law time, and that brings us to the exciting little mini-series we're starting today. You are going to be so happy you are here, because we're starting today, first of all, with an overview of the Sumerian law code of Ernamu from 2150. Next week, we're going to dig into the riveting code of Hammurabi from 1760. We're going to follow that up by looking at the more recent law of Moses and as it centers in the Ten Commandments. And Well, the first part of what I just said isn't true. We're not going to be looking at those other laws, but we are going to be looking at a pretty ancient law. And the question that I have is, why in the world are we going to devote 11, count them, weeks to studying an archaic, you would think, ancient Near Eastern law from 3,000 or from, uh, from uh, 1400 BC, nearly over 3,000 years ago? Who studies ancient Near Eastern law? What kind of Bible nerds are we? I mean, I know it's in the Bible, and I'm not, I'm not disrespecting it, but you talk about archaic laws. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. This is how you purify from this and that. All of these kinds of laws. And of course, they are started out with this grand summary that we're going to be giving attention to in the Ten Commandments. But we look at this law and we realize not only is it ancient, But we don't live under it. We're not subject to it. This is not our covenant. We are not Jews. This law is not given to us. We are Gentiles who have come into a covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. I might add, in the words of the New Testament, apart from the works of the law. The works of the law, Paul says in Romans 7, 5, this law, because of the weakness of our flesh, excites us to do the very things it tells us not to do. And so we've got to be somehow delivered from it as some sort of a system. It it condemns us because if you break one of them, you're guilty of all. And Galatians 3 says that we're under the curse of the law if we've broken a single one of them. It fails as a system of justification. The blood of bulls and goats may purify someone ceremonially, but Hebrews 9.14 says it's only the blood of Christ that can cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Doesn't the Old Testament point to the New and say there's something better coming? And isn't the entire code summarized in the single word, as Paul tells us in Romans 13.8, love? then why in the world should we spend time looking at these words in, that were written in stone? To answer that question, we go back to Exodus. We go back to the mountain and remind ourselves of what takes place in that grand scene in Exodus chapter 19. It's been seven weeks since the Israelites have left Egypt. God's part of the Red Sea. They've crossed through. God has turned bitter water into sweet. God has given them quail from heaven. God has given manna from heaven and has continued to do that every single day. God brings forth water from a rock. God gives them a military victory over an organized army of the Amalekites when they've got no business going to war, but God delivers them by His power. He directs Moses to set up chiefs or elders among the people. 
at the council of his father-in-law. And here they are now, finally, after seven weeks, coming into the wilderness of Sinai. Do you remember when Moses first talked to God back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush? God said, hey, here's the sign that it's me that's sending you. Once this is all over, you're going to come back to this mountain and worship me. And I always thought, well, that's kind of a sign. How do you give a sign after the fact? But that's what God said to Moses, and here they are. Just as God said, they have come back to the mountain of the Lord. And now in Exodus chapter 19, we find out why this has been God's plan all along. Because of what's going to happen at this particular mountain. And it starts in chapter 19 as God addresses the people through Moses in verse 4. God says to the people through Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And God essentially isn't going to invite them here into a covenant. God begins by reminding them of what He has done. Remember what I did in Egypt. Do you remember the plagues? Do you remember the seed? Do you remember the mighty acts of redemption that you have seen from me? Can you reflect upon my love and my power that has been given toward you? And it's a reminder that deliverance always precedes obedience. When it comes to salvation, grace is always the first move. We don't make the first move. God makes the move. It's always grace. Grace always comes first. And God delivers Israel from Egyptian bondage, and now He calls them into covenant with kind of this if-then sort of formula. If you, then I, and it's if you. God has expectations. Though He's delivered them by grace from the land, of Egypt, God has expectations for Israel, and they're, they're pretty clear that they will willingly enter into this covenant, that they will accept the terms of the covenant, that they will listen to the voice of God, and that they will obey the God who has been so gracious and powerful to deliver them. And that in that relationship, they will seek to be obedient to Him. And God says, if you're willing to accept me on those terms, I've got something planned for you beyond what you could imagine. You will be my treasured possession. He says, you know, the whole earth is mine. All peoples are mine. But I am going to make a decision to choose you out of all the peoples of the world to come near to me, to enter into a close, intimate relationship with me. And God lets Israel know this isn't because they're such a great people or so that they can look down on the world because of this lofty place they now have. Not at all. God calls them into this relationship so that they can now be intermediaries between God and the rest of the world. God's plan is to save the world, not just to save Israel. Israel is the means that God is going to work through to bring His grace down to to this earth and to bring salvation to them. And God says, I will make you my treasured possession so you can be intermediaries for me. You will be a kingdom of priests. A priest who stands between God and men, God and the world. Israel will be the priests of God on this earth, priests who will mediate the grace of God, the Word of God, His revelation and His will 
to a world that needs to know their Creator. And God says to Israel, you will be a holy nation. You will be different from all the other peoples of the earth. And that's how you will function as a kingdom of priests. And we see how this happens beginning here, but of course going through the entire Old Testament, how they will fulfill this role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're going to reflect God's nature. Over and over again, Israel is told, look, you're to be different. And the reason you're to be different is because of your relationship with me. And when the people and the nations of the world see life in Israel, see the justice in Israel, see the holiness in Israel, see a a nation who cares for the weak, for the sojourner, for the alien, for the aged, for the poor. When the nations of the world see you and see how you're living out in this community life, the very nature of God, God says you're going to become like a light to them. You are, you are going to draw people to me. And so God says you are to reflect my nature as a, as a holy nation and as a kingdom of priests. You will proclaim, and they do proclaim God's truth when they're faithful to God. They're proclaiming the Word of God to the nations around them. They intercede on behalf of the world as they offer sacrifices within their own covenant. And that covenant is, is of course, between them and God. The nations are, are, are given an opportunity and a means to be able to draw near to God as well as Israel intercedes on behalf of sin through the sacrifices that God will give to her. They preserve God's Word. The Old Testament that we're reading from today, inspired by the Holy Spirit, And every word of the Old Testament is written by someone from the family of Israel. This was one of the things that Israel does. They preserve the promises and the Word of God. And we have it today in written form because of what God was doing to work through that nation. And of course, most importantly to us is that they're going to be the nation through whom the Messiah is going to come. That's a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, that from the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we're down now to the larger family of Abraham, and it's through the nation of Israel that the Messiah will come and the Savior of the world will come forth, reaching down even to our own time. And so in verse 7, the people immediately accept. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The people agree. And once they agree, God calls them to get ready to meet him. In the next paragraph, there's quite a bit said about being consecrated or made holy because they're going to come into the presence of God. Let me read just from verse 10. That the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. 
And so the people must prepare. They're coming into the presence of the Holy God, and God calls them to prepare through some cleansing and some things that will make them ready to come into His presence. And notice how boundaries are set around the mountain. God Himself is coming down, the glory of God upon this mountain. This mountain will be holy because of the presence of God. And there's a boundary set around it. Anyone who touches this mountain will be put to death. They will die. You don't come into the presence of God casually. And one of the things Israel learns at this very moment from the outset is the holy God can be a very dangerous God. You approach Him at His bidding in response to His grace and call. And Israel prepares themselves. And that's when they meet God on the mountain. In verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is the moment that God has been preparing His people for. This is the moment He had in mind in Exodus chapter 3. And it is a terrifying moment. It's dark. It's unusually dark, and yet there's fire there in the sky. And trumpet is sounding to call the people together. There's thunder. There's lightning. The mountain is completely shrouded in smoke. The smoke is billowing up like out of a mighty furnace or kiln because God Himself is descending on the top of the mountain in the form of fire. And the earth, the entire mountain, and the earth on which Israel stands begins to quake. And it just continues to quake. Folks, they were not relating to some PowerPoint slide. This was real. If we could somehow, in the eyes of imagination and faith, place ourselves in that moment. We like them to tremble. Because God has drawn near. And God, here's Moses speak to him, and then God answers, and his voice is thunder to the people. It's just thunderous. And then after a second warning, not to come up onto the mountain, 
God speaks to the people. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain spoke smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is no archaic, ancient, Near Eastern legal code. This is not the code of Hammurabi. These are the words of the living God. These are the words of the creator of the universe, the sovereign of all that is, the God who transcends creation itself. These are words that are thundering from a mountaintop, coming through fire and smoke before the people of God. And this is why, over 3,000 years later, we turn back to these words. Because these are the words of the living God. And the Ten Commandments are the Ten Words, as they're called in Deuteronomy 4.13, reveal to us the nature and the character of God. That's why they're important to us. These aren't arbitrary rules. These laws, these 
teachings are not pulled out of thin air. They are the essence of the nature of God. An action isn't right just because it says it's right. An action is right because it corresponds to the very nature of God, the Creator, who is speaking to His people. An action isn't wrong from some sort of just divine, well, let's just make that wrong. No, an action is wrong, a behavior is wrong, because it completely conflicts with the nature and the essence of the living God. That's what makes things right and wrong. These things aren't arbitrary. They're revealing something to us about the very nature and the very character of God. These are showing us His character of holiness. Why is it wrong to lie? You shouldn't lie. Lying's a bad thing. You know, people think bad of you. You know, people won't trust you. There's some, you know, all, all sorts of pragmatic reasons not to lie. No. God is truth. God is true. God is a God of sincere integrity. God is true. God does not lie. It is impossible for God to lie. God does not deceive. Truth-telling is consistent with the nature of God. That's what makes it right. That's why it's good. Because it reflects His character. And lying isn't just breaking a rule. Lying isn't just going against some law or code. Lying is a rejection of the very nature of God in your life and His call to be like Him. These laws are revealing to us the very character of God. So that for Israel, this call into covenant as this law is given to them, is not just to give them a new set of rules that they haven't had before, but it's to call them into a relationship with God where they begin to reflect the very nature of the God who has saved them. It's about their transformation into His likeness as the law itself reveals His nature to them. God's nature is unchanging. The God who spoke to Moses and Israel from the mountain is the same God who speaks to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's good for us and it's right for us to go back. To go back to this mountain. To reveal the holy character of God. And to ponder what it means for you and I to live out that holiness in our own lives today. But also, these ten words of Yahweh teach us how to be holy. They teach us how to be like God. These laws, these ten commands, these ten words are specific, aren't they? They're objective. They're clear. They're very easy to understand. God lets His people know exactly what it is that He's expecting from them in terms of their behavior. And yes... They all can be summed up in the word to love. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Even the Old Covenant will make that summary. But the law tells us how. The the law can sometimes show us what love looks like and how a holy love acts toward others. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. You shall not steal. Honor your father and mother. God says you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying this is how you live a holy life. This is how you show love to those in your world. And he's he's giving this to Israel to create this community wherein the holiness and the love of God can be seen among the whole people. 
And they become then the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God wants them to be. And these are forcefully taught to us in the commandments. Chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words. Moses did not come up with this. These are the words of the living God. And as someone pointed out quite some time ago, they are not called the Ten Suggestions. They are commands. These are words spoken with thunder from a mountain that is on fire and billowing smoke because of the presence of the Almighty God. These are not words to take lightly, but ones to ponder. And so we return to this mountain. We return to these ten words, these ten commandments. Not as a system of justification for us. We know wherein lies our justification. It's by faith in the blood of Christ. We don't have any misunderstanding about that. We don't go to these ten commandments so that we can be delivered from sin. On the contrary, they don't serve that purpose. They're contrary to that purpose. We come to this mountain and we come to these words to gaze upon the holiness of God and to commit ourselves to becoming like Him. And to throw in one last idea is that we come back to this mountain and to this covenant because our covenant with God through Jesus Christ so completely parallels and yet fulfills God's covenant with Israel. There's so many parallels between what's happened already to Israel and what's happened to us. And those parallels will just grow through the centuries of Israel's history. But they were in bondage. Well, we were in bondage to sin. They passed through the Red Sea. We passed through the waters of baptism. They were called into covenant by the grace of God. We've been called into covenant by the grace of God. The Word of God that came to them bringing grace also set out for them their purpose and their very meaning for existence. And so too does the covenant that we're under. In First Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes Exodus 19. He quotes Exodus 19 and he applies it to the church. And in the context of this not being a people but now being a people, we recognize that he's applying it specifically to the Gentiles. That means you and me. And Peter takes the same words that we find in Exodus chapter 19 verses 4 through 6 and says to you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the peop- You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the people of God. We are the treasured possession. Just as Israel was, now we in Christ, who've come into covenant with God through Christ and faith in Christ, We all, Jew and Gentile alike, we are the treasured possession of God. We are the chosen race, are the chosen people. We are the royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. That is the kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be a revelation of God's nature to this world. 
And don't you see, it's so clear, Peter points it out to us, that we have essentially the same role that Israel did. How do we, how do we carry out this role, both individually and together as the body of Christ or as the church in the world? Well, well, first of all, we reflect God's nature. We reflect God's nature. If we don't reflect God's nature in this world, I can just, we're just useless to God in this world. The church exists. We as the treasured possession exist to reflect the nature of God in a world that so desperately needs to know God and doesn't know Him. And God's people have got to reflect that nature. We have to be a holy people. We have to be set apart. Not in some sense that that makes us feel so good about ourselves and, and higher than someone else who isn't a part of what God has made of us, but rather just to show within this world God's love and His grace and His truth. To be those priests who mediate the grace and the love of God. To proclaim the truth, just as Israel was to proclaim the truth. Peter says, proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And we have a world that is in darkness. And it's the role that we have as new covenant people in Jesus Christ. Not only to be a light, not only to be a beacon and to show an attractive lifestyle to those in the world, but then to proclaim that message and invite people to know God and to come into Christ. And at the same time, do we not intercede for the people of this world? I think far too often I find myself railing against the world and the evil in it. And it's so easy to do and it's so natural because there's so much evil in our own country. I mean, we're not going to go down that path, but you know what I'm talking about. I want to encourage us all to intercede for this broken world. This world is so broken and lost. People are so deceived. People that we get angry at because of the things that they believe and the things they do, they're so deceived. They're so in bondage to sin. How we need to intercede for this world and pray for this world. And if we're just devoted to prayer for this world and its brokenness and its darkness, then we're going to be looking for opportunities to mediate the grace of God and the light of God and the truth of God to people who are still enslaved and in bondage. Slaves to sin, to death. And that's what God calls us to be is the church. And so as we come back to the mountain, we hear Israel's call into covenant. We hear these commandments that are given to her, but it reminds us that we've been called, that we've entered into a covenant because God has delivered us. And as we just begin to look at these words, let me ask, are you devoted to being holy like your God is holy? Are we devoted to this? We are to be a holy nation. I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about the body of believers. We are to be a holy nation and presence in this world. Are you and I, are we individually devoted to become more and more like God? Or are we just satisfied with just getting through life and being kind of like everyone around us? Do we truly turn away from evil and seek to be like our God? Are we serious about that? Is it important to us? And do we proclaim the excellencies of Him 
who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light? Do we proclaim that message, first of all, by being good news in our lives, by living life in such a way that people can see our lifestyle, people can see that we are living differently, not that we're some kind of holier-than-thou kind of individual, but they can just see that we are living by standards that may not be reflected by everybody else around us. Are we doing that and then taking the opportunity beyond that to speak to them, to tell them the difference, to point them to God, to speak to them about Jesus Christ, and to let to let our life and to let the community of the church be a light to them. And some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, but you don't know what's going on in my life right now, man. My life, I've got some troubles. I've got some challenges going on in my life. I, I've just got some horrible situations that I'm facing in my life, and I just don't know that you know, anybody's going to look to me and say, oh, yeah, look what, how great it is to be a Christian. I want to assure you that if you are troubled today, if you're facing challenges if you're dealing with heartbreak, if you are facing some kind, any kind of traumatic moment in your life, this may be the best moment for you to be an example in this world. Because everyone knows that everyone falls into trouble. We, when we face those challenges in our life, we can choose to respond as people of faith, as people who rely upon God, as people who don't compromise our principles, regardless of what happens, even if we're cheated or if we lose, that we're going to be true to God. It may be as people watch you faithfully deal with the challenges you're facing right now, that you will have more impact on a person's life than all those times when things were just smooth sailing. So don't think, well, you don't know what my life is like. Some of the greatest examples of faith we have are people living faithfully through great trial. And I encourage you to see this moment in your life as an opportunity to be a beacon of light, of holiness, and of obedience to the will of God. Whatever happens on this earth, may people see that you're faithful to your Lord and that you're reflecting His nature in the way that you're dealing with the issues that you're facing. It all begins, this covenant life, this call to holiness, proclaiming God's excellencies, it all begins with the vision of God. You must see the glory of God. I know we can't go back to Mount Sinai and have this happen literally, visually. But in faith, in reflection, in meditation. It can be every bit as real. I think far too often we push such scenes and such moments out of our thinking. I would like to encourage you as we spend the next few weeks with these commandments to always start out at this mountain, to see the fire, to see the smoke, to hear the thunder, to feel the ground. Never stop shaking. Because God is near. Because I believe that when you have a vision of the grace and the glory of God, becoming holy like Him will be the pursuit of your life. And if you don't have that vision, 
If this is not real to you, then a call to a holy lifestyle is just a burdensome duty that you just can't ever quite pull off. There Israel stands. And they say, Moses, you talk to us from now on. We, we don't want to hear the voice of God anymore. We're afraid we're going to die. We think we're going to die. You just, but you just handle that. Everybody thinks they want to come into the presence of God until they come into the presence of God. And it turns out to be a very different experience than they were anticipating. You've read the Bible. What happens every time anything close like this happens? People hit the floor. People think they're going to die because they've come into the presence of the Holy One. We need to have that kind of encounter in our own lives, in our heart, with this God who is so holy. It's dangerous to come into His presence, and yet what has He done? By grace, by the blood of Christ, He's opened the way into His very throne room in heaven itself. The grace of God toward us, the love of this holy God that allows us to draw near. This is what motivates us to want to do the the will of God and be obedient to His commandments. He is so gracious to us. We worship Him today and we are in awe of Him today. Because how in the world can He draw near to me? I'm such a sinner. We're so filthy and sinning, yet God cleanses us through the blood of Christ. And not only cleanses us, but He calls us into this relationship where if we you just stop and think about it for a moment, you and I are in the very heart of the eternal purpose of God, reaching out and mediating His love and truth to a lost world. What higher calling could there possibly be in life? than to be a priest of God in this world that is in such desperate need of His mercy and truth. And so we come back to the mountain and we study these ten words of Yahweh that reveal His nature, that call us to be like Him, that teach us what love is, and that remind us of our purpose to be a holy nation and to be priests in this world who proclaim the goodness of God. May we, as those who have come into covenant with God, be faithful to that. If there's anyone in our family today in any way struggling in your faithfulness to the covenant that you've entered into through the blood of Christ, let us know as the church how we might pray for you or support you or help you in any way. And if there are among us today anyone who's not yet entered into this covenant through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, we invite you to come today and put your faith in what Christ did for you on the cross, in the shedding of His blood to take away your sin. Turn from your sin. You, in your faith, you can go right back to the death of Christ on the cross and you can die with Him and you can be buried with Him and you can come up out of that grave with new life filled with the Spirit of God as in faith you're immersed into Christ and united with Him, to become a part of the holy nation of God, not by our doing, but our calling through Christ. If there's anyone who needs to come to our awesome God today, we want you to come. And as we sing this song, let's be reminded of the role that we have 
to tell everyone else. Let's stand and sing.